Our scripture reading this morning comes from chapter 11 of the book of Ecclesiastes as we uh, get close to completing our sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes is an Old Testament wisdom book written by Solomon who wrote it while he was wrestling with the apparent tension between what we say and believe about God, namely that he is, and that he's redeeming the world and for good, and that he rewards goodness in the world, and what we actually see, which is that oftentimes it seems like none of those things are true. And how do we live in the light of that tension? And uh, as he gets close to concluding his stream of thought, he says this, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves in the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not snow, will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed, and at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, All right. Well, it's good to be together. Um, We have an opportunity to uh, take a look at this uh, unusual book in the Bible. And uh, I'm wondering uh, if you remember some of the basic ideas of this book, uh, and that is that life is is like a vapor. That's what Solomon is saying. And uh, what we try to do with life is we try to take that vapor that's coming or the steam that's coming off the tea kettle and we try to shape something out of it. That's the image. Uh, The bleak image that Solomon is providing for us, saying that um, if you are just living with a basic under-the-sun wisdom, you are going to experience futility. One of the recurring themes is you're up against the wind. Uh, You are going to engage in projects and be frustrated. Uh, We learned last week that um, the race is not to the swift. And we learned images of, of someone who's preparing to do well in life, and it doesn't always work out that way. In fact, last week we learned that A little bit of foolishness can ruin a whole bunch of wisdom. And now we are uh, probably wondering in our in our minds, well, then why why engage at all? Uh, Why be involved with with life? Uh, Why not just be self protective? If things are so uncertain in life, uh, why not just play it safe? And so with those thoughts, will you join me in prayer as we think about this book and these words? Father, thank you that you have these six verses in front of us today 
for your, for your purposes. You know exactly what we need to hear and why. And I pray you will help us to find uh, a way to respond to you and, uh, and to know what it's like to be so secure that we can respond and to engage in our world. We, we ask that you would do that. Show us those things. In Christ's name, we pray. Okay, so uh, you have your outline there for you and uh, some, some thoughts about how Jesus Christ really frees us from, from some fears. And so we're going to be unpacking that this morning. And I want you to sort of just follow along. And if you'd like to take notes, that would be great. Uh, we're going to be just exploring what it looks like to respond to, to God's generosity. Um, as I mentioned, uh, this is a, a hard book to grasp. What am I supposed to walk away with? What am I supposed to conclude uh, about this book? And uh, I think that there is really a, a tendency, as we read Ecclesiastes, to actually say, I think I'm going to play it safe in life. Uh, even in our text, we've already found that you, you, know, you don't know, but tomorrow might bring a, bring a disaster. And so these, the, the, Solomon has these bleak sort of statements about, you know, you don't know, uh, a hurricane could hit tomorrow. And it sort of sets you back, it sort of hits you, and it, it sort of causes a, a response of, well, then what should I do? Maybe I shouldn't do anything. In fact, Ecclesiastes is almost too convincing. And I want to ask whether or not, as you think about your life, your observations of life, maybe you find yourself today just flat out discouraged. Maybe you find that your experience in life is, is making you say, you know what, why bother? I'm going to put in the bare minimum required of me. Ecclesiastes is almost too convincing. But it's interesting at this moment, Solomon does something very unusual. He talks about giving and casting, casting your bread. We'll explore what that means. In these six verses, he does something very, very unusual. He talks about getting engaged in life, not playing it safe. He does a complete sort of reversal of what we've heard up, up to this point. He's, it seems as though he's anticipating that we are ingrown or we are, preser- we are self-preserving in our view of life. I want to encourage you that we are not left alone to respond to life. But God has come in Jesus Christ, and God has acted for us in Jesus Christ, and we are now responding to God's coming in Jesus and making us secure. Life throws at us hard things, difficult things, perplexing things. But Jesus Christ has come. And so let me just share with you our first point. Jesus Christ frees us to become risk-taking Christians. Jesus Christ frees us. Do you think of the gospel in terms of freedom? Throughout the New Testament, that's a key theme. To encounter Jesus means that you are now free from this inward focus, John Calvin said, that our basic issue is that we are, oh, excuse me, Augustine said that our basic issue is that we are ingrown, that we are, we are turned inward. 
And the gospel works in such a way to free us from this fearful ingrownness. Take a look at verse 1. Throw your bread. Isn't it interesting? Cast your bread upon the waters, and you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. Let me just pause there, verses 1 and 2. Cast your bread upon the water. Interesting image, isn't it? It's poetic. It's a strange image. What must it mean? Uh, Scholars uh, have found that the Egyptians, the the Arab proverbs actually have similar kind of thought. Uh, Throw your bread upon the water. And And in this ancient world, and even today in the Middle East, bread is not a loaf of bread like we're used to. It's a flat bread. The really good stuff's in, in Tehran, Iran. I should to tell you about that. And uh, this flatbread can float for a little while on, on the water. And we think of bread just dissolving. And in fact, Solomon says no. He says, for you will, you will, you will find it after many days. Now, there, there might be too much being read into this uh, proverb here. But really, it, he's talking about engaging spontaneous involvement. It may take a while for you to see the benefit of your involvement. It may take several days. Like, what was that about? Strange. I I gave away what was precious, what was valuable. And really, what, what scholars think is going on here, and there's some disagreement. Bread means this is how you make a living. Cast what you think is important out there into the world. And in this historic setting, here's what they think. Solomon Solomon was encouraging Israel, get out and and do commerce in the world. Get in your ships and go. Go out into the waters and see what benefit can come to the nation if you will be engaged. You might think, wow, that's pretty strange. Cast your bread upon the waters. Make an effort. It's interesting. Don't play it safe. And then verse 2, it's very interesting. They think that this is talking about someone who is a steward over an inheritance. So someone has left you a chunk of money, and now there's family and relatives to to disperse the money out. Look at verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. Here's the deal. In the Hebrew mind, the the number seven is the number of completion. And so they're thinking here that when someone is dispensing the the money uh, uh, from an inheritance, someone may be just playing it safe. Look, I I, I did what I was supposed to do. I completed my job. And Solomon is saying this. You know, you don't know, but it might be important to give some money to one more relative. Because, and look at how verse 2 ends up, you don't know what disaster is coming your way, and it might be helpful to have money to one more person because that might be the one person who can help you out when your life falls apart. You see, I told you we have to be like the Tibetan honey hunters, right? To get the sense of these words, if we do not give our heart patiently to Ecclesiastes, it will skip off our heart and we'll say, I want to get on to something that's a little easier. But if we dwell on it, we might find, wait a minute, this is about, this is about risk-taking. 
Drop down to verse 4. This is very interesting. He who observes the wind will not sow. This is a picture of a farmer. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. So it's it's a picture of a farmer waiting for the perfect time to plant his seeds in the ground. And uh, and, uh, Solomon's saying, well, if you just wait for the perfect time, you're never going to do anything. If you keep waiting for perfect weather, you're never going to get involved. Once again, risk even when it doesn't appear to be the perfect time or your assessment of why should I risk now? Never mind all of your observations and waiting for perfection. Get involved, sow your seed, otherwise you will never reap a harvest. Now look at verse 3. This one's really unusual. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. Well, I get that. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Well, thank you, Solomon. That's brilliant. Uh, What are we supposed to do with this? He uses two illustrations. Clouds, it's very hard to manipulate clouds, though we have, we can, I guess we can somehow seed the clouds and make rain, I guess. But it's hard to manipulate clouds. They're above you. You can't shape them. You can't touch, you can't touch them or, or make them work for you. And when a tree falls, you may have been really clever in figuring out which way it's going to go, and you, well, it just fell, and it landed in, in, a, in a place you didn't really imagine. And guess what? There it is. You having to deal with two things you can't control. And here's his point. You can't control... The weather, as it's raining right now. You can't control the weather. And you know what? When trees fall, you really can't control that either. And if you think you can control it, now try and move it. It's stuck in the ground, as it were. These illustrations are saying, look, don't you see? You're up against life. You're up against weather. You're up against trees that fall and gravity really works. So now what are you going to do? And each of us are making conclusions based upon our observations. And some of us are, in, we are just disengaged. We're discouraged because of how life has unfolded for us. We're choosing the safe way. We're moving, we're moving inward. We think it, it may, makes sense at this point in our life. We have a way of explaining it. We think we're accurately interpreting life. And Solomon says, as rough as I've been, as discouraging as the truth I've tried to get you to see might be, I want you to take risks and resist being immobilized. So there's one path before us that's self-protective. And the other path is throw your bread on the water. Throw it out there. Take take what's precious to you, your time, your talents, your energy, and invest it. And, 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 And don't wait around for perfect conditions. Um, I guess this, I, 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 that's why I like Ecclesiastes. I think, I think this is a book of just rich pictures of what life really is all about. I want to share with you a story about a, a man. And I, I, was a, I was a, well, I was a young, young boy, I guess, at the time. Uh, I want to say I was about 12, 13 years old when this story happened. And I vaguely, I vaguely remember this story. It took place in 1974, and it had to do with the World Trade uh, Towers, the, the World Trade Center. Uh, those towers, by the way, were, were 1,300, 1,368 feet tall. 
and they were separated by 200 feet. And there was a young uh, Frenchman six years earlier who was visiting his dentist, uh, dentist and reading a magazine in Paris. And he read six years earlier about this, these crazy Americans who wanted to build these huge towers. And the moment he read about these towers, he knew what he was going to do. He was a, uh, a his name was uh, Philippe Petit, and he, he was a circus performer, grew up in a family of circus performers, and he'd, be, he'd become very bored with uh, the, high, the, the, you know, the high wire and the, the, you know, the, the bareback rider and juggling and all the stuff that he did. And he became kind of a, somewhat of a dangerous uh, street performer and doing all kinds of risky things. And he was really, again, kind of bored. And so he planned six years before the towers were actually built. He thought of this idea. I'm going to string a cable between the two towers and I'm going to walk between them. And he got some friends of him, uh, his to help him, and they used a crossbow with fishing line. Tink! And then they pulled a, a rope across, and then they pulled a three-quarter-inch cable across, and they snuck up there at, uh, pretending to be construction workers, and they were on a floor that no one was using. They, they found uh, two floors that no one was using at the time. So here we go. In August 7th, at about 7 in the morning, New York had a surprise. Philippe Petit was on his way a quarter mile off the earth. Now, uh, this attracted the attention of the police. They seemed to discourage this kind of thing. So, what's interesting is that the police are waiting for him on both sides of the cable. And they wait, and they wait. Now, you think, well, he's just going to do one run, one very nervous run. Wouldn't you think? Just one. He crosses the span eight times. And they interviewed one of the police officers. And they said, well, what, what did he say? Well, what was it like to, to uh, first of all, what was it like to see him? What was it like to be there? And he said, well, you guys are all calling him a tightrope walker. We, while we're waiting for him, called him a tightrope dancer. Because what he was doing was he was bouncing on the cable and at times, his feet left the cable. And most of the time, he had the biggest smile on his face. Don't you feel just nervous talking about this? <laughs> this is, I mean, you know what I'm saying? And he finally walked to one of the towers and was arrested. And they asked him, did you do this for money? Did you do this for fame? And he said this. He said, when I see three oranges, I have to juggle. And when I see two towers, I have to walk. Now, there's someone who is engaged at the heart level, and what they see captures their whole being. He saw this in a magazine, two towers that had yet to be built, and his heart was engaged with an extraordinary, crazy imagination. I can do it, I can't wait for these six years to get over. And so let me ask you, when you hear the name Jesus Christ, when you hear that he rose from the dead, when you hear that he is now the conquering king over death and hell and sin and Satan, when you hear these things, what do you say? He said, when I see three oranges, I have to. When I see two towers, I have to. When you hear the name Jesus Christ and you know what he did for you, what, how do you answer? fill in this phrase, I have to?
to encounter Jesus Christ is to have your whole being touched and to see things now differently. God has acted. Now I must. I have to. Solomon is is saying, life is uncertain, but God is acting. God is using the effort you make in this world. Don't discount it. Don't discount your involvement in this world. God doesn't call us to be tightrope walkers a quarter mile off the earth. But let me ask you, is there... Is, is there dancing in your heart? In fact, when you think about it, Jesus Christ calls us to be risk takers. It almost sounds goofy to put it that way. If you interviewed Philippe Petit and say, oh, you're such a risk taker, I think he would just say, that's just a strange way of looking at it. He was involved in the beauty and wonder and glory and excitement and thrill of using his skills and ability. And, uh, and I think there's, there's a real heart application for us. What does Jesus Christ do in you? How does he dazzle you? What imagination is now being developed in you? What, what generosity are you now extending to the world? Does he free you? Does he free you? Secondly, Jesus Christ frees us to resist a small-hearted response to God. And here I just want to see Jesus uh, telling people to toss your bread upon the waters. He he does it in so many ways. Uh, Matthew 10.39, really that phrase from Ecclesiastes 11 is very reminiscent of, 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 well, it it connects with Jesus' words where he says, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will gain it. To encounter Jesus Christ really was um, was an encounter uh, of a decision. Uh, People did make decisions when they encountered him. And Jesus often would remark about the decision that they had made, how they had assessed his worth, how they had assessed whether or not it was worth following him and giving up all to do it. People are being freed from their enslavement and their self-protectiveness and a small-hearted response to God. Let me quote to you a a little bit of a long quote. Just stay with me on this. John Piper, such a popular and insightful writer uh, and pastor, he writes this in this book called God is the Gospel, Meditations on God's Love as the Gift of Himself. Listen to this. The ultimate good of the gospel is seeing and savoring the beauty and value of God. God's wrath and our sin obstruct that vision and that pleasure. We can't see and savor God as supremely satisfying while we are full of rebellion against him. And he is full of wrath against you. The removal of this wrath and this rebellion is what the gospel is for. The ultimate aim of the gospel is the display of God's glory and the removal of every obstacle to our seeing it and savoring it as our highest treasure. And then listen to this. Behold your God, as in quotes, is the most gracious command and the best gift of the gospel. 
if we do not see him and savor him as the greatest fortune, we have not obeyed or believed the gospel. Jesus Christ frees us from a small-hearted response to God. We think of Luke 6.30. Jesus describes the idea of, of give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Jesus envisions generous, giver, generous res, responders to his gospel with generosity. 2 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul encourages the, the Corinthians that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What God is doing is he's surrounding us with, with the music of his generosity. He's surrounding us with, with, the, with, with the rhythm of heaven and heaven's gracious and merciful love toward the earth. And this is coming our way, and we see it in the cross, and now it's entering into our experience through the Spirit. We're moving with God. God is moving with us. Paul says to the Philippians in Philippians 4, 19, fairly famous verse, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And so the gospel is renewing us internally, but it's also moving us externally. The idea that we are actually in this movement of divine generosity is, is in a book called For God So Loved, and it's by Dr. Kelly Capick, who's a professor at Covenant College. And he, he talks about the idea that this music or this movement of God is coming our way, and we have been given the, the opportunity to improvise in our response to it. God has communicated a, a kind of music, and we are now creating our own improv improvisation of it. This illustration might be a little self-indulgent. Uh, uh, I could illustrate it without including myself, but I'm going to go ahead and do this. Uh, some of you don't know, and I, Joel, I don't think he knows this, but in fifth and sixth grade, I was a trumpet player. And uh, it was a long time ago. And my friend Kenny Thiessen, who was my neighbor, was a really good trumpet player, and he played for hours, and I played for minutes in rehearsals and in practicing. And then we had, in sixth grade, an opportunity. We had about maybe eight or nine trumpet players in our little elementary school. And we had a, a carnival kind of thing when parents were invited, and there was this sort of courtyard with grass, and I remember we were in the shade near the ca cafeteria. And we were playing along playing along this song that we had, we had played over and over and over and over. I think I had attention problems as a kid. And I'm there, and I'm playing along, and my friend Kenny Thiessen is right next to me, and our band leader moves away and goes around the corner. I don't know what he's thinking. He's leading us, right, giving us the tempo. And, all. and he just, like, walks away, confident we can play without him. And I thought, this is my chance. So... I'm hearing these guys playing along, playing along, and I start playing a solo. Absolutely true. And my friend Kenny Thiessen, who's like this, and he looks over at me, like, what are you doing? And I play for about 40 seconds. I did my own solo. Uh, it was a great moment in jazz music <laughs> history. And um, 
I was so confident of the music around me that I, I started hearing other notes. And I thought, well, let's try this. Well, that, this might work. And I'm making it up. I've never played this before. It was a short career in, in trumpet. And my, our band teacher came back, and, he, and they never knew. I remember the look. Kenny looked at me, and we were packing up our trumpets. And he's shaking his head at me like, what was that about? It's, that's a little picture of what it's like to enter into the movement of divine generosity. Improvise. Be free. Cast your bread upon the waters. Who knows? You might make the world a better place. You don't know. Improvise. Do you hear notes in your head about what it would look like to serve this great God who's been so generous, to surround you with this beautiful music of his mercy. There was a missionary once being introduced, and the, the one who was introducing this individual was going on and on about how the sacrifices this missionary had made to do their work and stuff. And this missionary got up there and said, you know, I've never made a sacrifice. It's like the tightrope walker saying, I, I, I don't take risks. I just do, I just am what I am. I think that's true for us. Jesus Christ frees us from a small-hearted response to God. I have a small-hearted response to God. God, in his graciousness to me, knew how small my heart response would be. So he made me a preacher, forcing me to think about it. What what would it look like to have a large heart? I live in a small-hearted view of things. That's why we gather in worship, because we don't have it together, and we're, we see our small vision of life. And then thirdly, Jesus Christ frees us to refuse absolute certainty about the future. This is very interesting. Look at verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you don't know the work of God who makes everything. In other words... You can't see everything. Uh, who would ever think, well, I won't have children until I can observe the whole process? Uh, not possible, really. Even, even with our sophisticated medical tech, we can't see everything. And, and Solomon's arguing, saying, look, you, you do all kinds of things without certainty and without complete knowledge. Uh, a child born, you don't, know how, you don't even know how it happened. He's arguing don't have a real reason to be immobile, immobilized, disengaged. There's no real reason. Are you waiting for perfect knowledge and certainty? And then look at the verse 6. In the morning, sow your seed. Farmer, get out there and sow your seed. And in the, in the evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. You might have a, a, a stunning uh, harvest, uh, and you sowed your seed in terrible weather. You, you, you don't know how it's all going to unfold. How many of you are waiting? You're waiting. It's, it, it even feels wise. If, if a salesman calls you up, or if, you know, if you, you have somebody trying to sell you something, it makes fold your arms. Yeah, come on, it's, it's too good to be true. It makes sense that you wait for a lot of information. Big decision. That makes sense. But are you just waiting around in your serving? Maybe joining a fellowship group. Maybe helping the church. You're waiting around. 
I, uh, you know, we train elders. <laughs> I try to imagine every possible scenario. I think we train them in about 3% of the eventualities. And um, I, I basically say to our, I said to our new elders, um, I'd like to promise you a tremendously deep and wonderful experience as an elder. I have no idea what's going to happen. That's really what I said. Now, that's not cynicism. I think it's realistic. I can't promise you a certainty of knowledge, a level of understanding of this, so that it feels comfortable at every step of the way. Sometimes when you volunteer, you want to help out in the church, you want a job description, maybe the church should supply you with a job description. It's not going to cover everything. Are you waiting for absolute certainty about the future? Or should you be like a farmer who sows his seed and says, you know what, I have no idea how this is all going to unfold, but I'm going to live in this moment. Paul Tournier was a Swiss psychologist, influential with me in my, in my college years. I read a lot of his stuff. And he said this, he said, some people are forever planning to live. It's very interesting. So Jesus calls us, to follow him and you don't have all the details of what it's going to look like to follow him. You can follow the apostles. You can read about what happens to them. But are you just held back and immobilized? It's interesting. We, we fly airplanes and we never meet the pilot. I assume there's someone up there. Sometimes we sit in the middle seats, those seats that we all try to avoid. Been there? Done that? Sometimes we fly and we never see the wings. You assume the wings are there. I think they're there. We hope they're there. And we make all kinds of decisions and we don't wait around for perfect certainty. It's interesting that, uh, that we're really saying something to God when we hesitate to serve. We're saying, yes, I, I, yeah, yes, I, yeah, lots of information. Yes, Jesus on the cross, yes. But we're saying something. It's, we're saying in a subtle way, it's good, but not enough. At times, it, 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 it's meaningful, but I, can, I live for something else with greater certainty. We sometimes will act with more confidence throughout our day in just the, the ways we get along with life than God's word. The reluctant heart, the unbelieving heart, the hard heart can have excuses for perfection. Involvement in the church is basically an admission that you are part of an imperfect group of people and we will reserve perfection for the final state, for heaven itself. It's interesting that God... Uh, in Jesus Christ, didn't wait for conditions to improve in mankind's heart. You know, they're getting better. You're getting better down there. Um, education's improving them, or their environment's helping them. And when they, when they are really receptive, and they're really coming along, then we will send the Son. Not true. Jesus is very much like the farmer here in verse 6, but he's the positive way not the negative. He's the farmer who sows the seed even in bad conditions. 
And he's the one who came in Matthew 13 when he describes the parable of the sower and the seed. That unusual parable where a, where a farmer, in, in the time when seed is very important, Matthew 13, the first parable, Jesus says, a farmer went out to sow and he tossed the seed indiscriminately. It lands on the hard soil and lands on different kinds of soil. Jesus Christ is the one who came and tossed the seed, the seed of the word of God, and made it land in your heart and made your heart the good soil. He's the one who cast his bread upon the water, who was enterprising toward you. And he's the one who is waiting for the final moment of this age when he will see the bread come back to him. One of the reasons why we don't act is because we think we own our lives. And the the tossing of bread means this is your enterprise, God. My livelihood is yours. And in this passage, we're up against weather and clouds and rain and falling trees. And you are up against things that you cannot control. And here's the bottom line. What are you going to do? Are you going to trust in yourself and your ability to assess things and wait and wait and wait? Or will you say, God, you came to this world and you conquered and you, you came and you, you wrestled this world to the ground and made it Submit to your will. The things that were fixed in this world, that under the sun cursed world, you made it work for your purposes. And now you are bringing all things together and they are working together. I can throw my bread on the water. I don't own it anyway. And if Jesus Christ can move in your heart where you see and I see that we are truly rich, we will toss our lives into his hands. Jesus tossed his life into the good hands of his Father. And there was never anyone like Jesus, who although he made and owned everything, continued to toss his life into the good hands of his Father that you might be free. And for a moment on the cross, he lived in this agonizing moment when the question came, was this of any good? Was this of any value? Should I have been self-protective in my visit here upon this earth? Father, why have you forsaken me? I didn't fail to throw my bread upon the water. Where is it? Jesus went through that, that you would have the certainty of his love and his care. You'd have the certainty of the Father's design for your salvation, and you'd have the Holy Spirit working in you even now to assure you that you will never, ever be lost, even if you venture your whole life in responding to him. May this cause us to be more engaged, and let me use the word more more reckless in our response to our generous God. Let's pray. 
And so, Father, we toss and we give back to you. We thank you for this this opportunity that's before us. Help us not be cynical and resigned and disengaged. Thank you that we are up against hard and difficult things that are, seem fixed. But you have come and you have been so gracious. Help us hear the music. Help us dance in the midst of risky situations. Help us respond with an improvisation to the music we hear about your love. And we love you. We express our thanks to you. Renew us by your grace. Amen.